You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Marine who had two deployments to Iraq, who had dealt with some very serious PTSD and is on his road to recovery. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. But first, our normal announcements, as always. I keep saying them because you're not doing your job in getting more people to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Make sure you guys... Continue to leave us Apple reviews. Give a thumbs up to tell us why you love the show. Five stars, whatever it is. The thumbs up is for the YouTube channel. Follow us on the YouTube channel as well. But continue to leave us comments. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. It means a lot. certainly helps the show grow and this Hazard Ground community grow. We appreciate all the support. Speaking of support, uh, our promotion with Amazon, as always, continues on our website, hazardground.com. You want to do some Amazon shopping as you get ready to go back to school? Really simple. Go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. Uh, it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show, like the one you'll hear about that our guests went through today, because it's one that I am personally familiar with as well. So uh, it's a great way to help out veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. But you got to go to hazardbound.com first. This week's guest is a former Marine corporal who, after four years, left the Marine Corps, had two deployments to Iraq. And after the first deployment was diagnosed with some pretty severe PTSD, yet still managed to get on another deployment. Upon returning from the second one, uh, tried to reenlist, would not happen due to multiple issues. And then his journey continued to a place called the Shepherd Center, which actually is right here outside of Atlanta. And the care that they are providing military veterans is off the charts good. I know that personally because I went through it. But here to share his story through his journey and recovery is Michael Cataldi here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so the Shepherd Center, just a fantastic place, uh, really is. And, and they are part of my healing journey as well. So when I had, saw your profile on, on their website, I was immediately intrigued because I'm always curious of, you know, not necessarily to grade the Shepherd Center, because I know from all accounts, what they do is really amazing, but, um, it, it's more proving the fact that no two veterans are ever going through the same thing, even though you had PTSD and I had PTSD and you had a TBI and I had a TBI, nothing is ever the same, right? Nothing's cookie cutter with any of this. We all need our own personal individual care. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your story and your journey through the whole thing. And, and, you know, just off the top real quick, you know, just a few words about your experience with the Shepherd Center. Uh, the, the Shepherd Center and in, in simple words restored hope. Um, they, they, the clinicians there just have, you know, the share magic and, uh, I've, I've gone through the program twice and, um, and I wouldn't be here without them. No, it's, it's per- perfectly said. Well, let's, uh, figure out how you ended up at the Shepherd Center and start at the beginning and how you ended up in the Marine Corps. Well, I come from a long line of Marines. Uh, grandfather was, uh, you know, Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal were two Marines. Wow. I had one uncle in uh, during Korea, two uncles in during Vietnam. And I saw the sound drill team when I was in middle school. And I was like, okay, sign me up. Um, after the uh, the planes hit the World Trade Centers, I was still in high school. And the following year, I uh, that was it. I, I wanted to go and, uh, and protect this country. Uh, any reservations from your family? I mean, you know, I, I know everybody else was in a war, but, you know, 
it's a big difference when your parents are saying, here, you know, take my child, so to speak, or at least want to put your foot down and try to talk out of it. Anybody try to do that? Yes. My, both my parents were worried. I wasn't even going to graduate uh, boot camp. Um, I used to plug my nose, jumping into the pool and, uh, had, I had night terrors as a kid and would scream in my sleep. So they were worried I was going to give away the position. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, not funny, funny, but yeah, that's, uh, I guess so, right? Covert ops, probably not your thing with night terrors. Um, did you, I mean, obviously with all the people in your family, you had a really good uh, notion of what boot camp was going to be like and, and how this whole thing starts, right? I mean, none of it sort of phased you at all? No, it did not. What was tougher about boot camp for you, the mental or the physical? The physical. I was not a physical uh, young man. I, I played a lot of video games and uh, worked in my car a lot. That's about it. I didn't do any sports, and it really surprised me. You know, you've said that you fell in love with the Marines. Uh, at what point do you, like, know that that happens? Is it from the very beginning, or is it somewhere else along the line, like after you finish boot camp and – and everything else, and you move on to what's next. And what about the Marines that you love so much? Um, the the structure was very appealing. Um, yeah, I was one of those many that were diagnosed with ADD as a young young man. Um, I had a feeling that it was just immaturity that uh, bloomed late, and the Marine Corps really helped uh, foster that ADD and gave me direction and uh, a purpose. And it, you know, it's the place where if you close your mouth and do the right thing, you get rewarded. And and I really enjoy that that the reward system. All right. So after you finish boot camp, where are you headed to next? Um, after a few schoolings, uh, I did my MOS school in Maryland, and then they sent me to uh, 29 Palms, California, middle of Mojave. What was your MOS? Obviously, uh, was it was a, a, infantry, right? Uh, no, I was a combat vehicle repairman. Okay. And I thought that was great because I wanted to be a diesel mechanic for, since I was in high school. And, uh, I got to the schoolhouse and there was tires on these tanks. I'm like, what is this? And then I was told when I wasn't turning wrenches, I was a dismount scout. Okay. That's an interesting piece of news that you probably didn't know going in. No, no, I didn't expect to be doing infantry stuff. Did it bother you? No, I was, I was excited. I was excited to get on the ground. Uh, So you ended up at Aberdeen then, right? For your school. Yeah. I I walked those same grounds uh, for my basic course way before you did, but. Yeah, uh, Aberdeen Proving Grounds, one of the best kept secrets in the army. That's an army post too. You got you had it really sweet. Yes, yes, it was a nice school. Yeah, yeah, not not too far from Baltimore and DC, and living the life in Hartford County, Maryland. Yeah, beautiful place to be. Uh, so after you get twenty nine Palms, it's like what month and year is it? August of two thousand three. I got there Labor Day weekend. Okay, so now you have two wars kicking off. Um, are you? Worried about having to go overseas? Are you excited about it? Like, where is your mindset as you land in California for your first duty station? I was excited to uh, to get to my unit and start my, my job. Um, when I when I got there, I really didn't have the concept that we were at war. It was kind of not brought to the – they told us about it at boot camp. I was in boot camp when we invaded Iraq. And I knew Afghanistan was going on. It wasn't really in my, my forebrain. Um, except all the people were on post-deployment leave and they all had that, that, you know, that recent combat energy and it was very, uh, contagious. And I wanted that confidence that they had from going overseas. So when you see these guys coming back, um, are you questioning them? Are you asking them what their experience was like, or are you just sort of keeping your mouth shut? I just kept my mouth shut. 
Okay, thought you froze there for a second. I apologize. <laughs> Um, it, just like that, you kept your mouth shut. There wasn't a word said. See, very, very well done. Uh, did, I mean, you didn't have any questions. You weren't even curious. Uh, no, no, I, I just, uh, I, I wasn't. I was just excited to be part of that that uh, brotherhood. When do you start to hear that you're going to deploy? When is the first time that that pops up on your radar? Um, I think it was within the first few weeks. I was at my unit. They they say we're redeploying. Okay. And your feeling is excitement? Yes, I was very excited. I I wish I had the mindset I have now. I mean, a lot of us do that. But uh, the the historical aspect of being in Babylon and, and just the Middle East, it was, it was very appealing. And I, I felt something like I needed to go. And it felt like I was being drawn there for a reason. And I was very excited to go. Just out of curiosity, what's the feeling you have now, comparatively speaking, to what you had then? Uh, again, the same feeling. I wish I could go back and and use this mindset I have now and appreciate it more. Um, I'm I'm glad I went. Appreciate being a Marine deployed kind of deal. When you say appreciate it, what do you mean specifically? Appreciate the the surroundings, the environment, the experience. I was very. Um, I was in that robotic mental mode. I just was there to do a job, and I. I moved through every day with mission oriented. I didn't really focus on what was going on around me. Just off the top of your head, what was something that you in retrospect, wish you appreciated more other than like, is there anything specifically I should say within the environment? Um, when we drove up through Iraq, cause we, we were, our, our AO was in Western Iraq and we went through um, Fallujah and, and Ramadi and we went that way. And I, I wish I would have, I would have liked to have appreciated the sites more. I know it wasn't a sightseeing tour, um, but just I'm in awe that I was there. And I well, don't remember some of the things. I would argue, too, that when you got there, which was what, late 2003? Uh, 2004. Okay, early 2004? Yes. Yeah. Most of the country was still in a manageable condition. Yeah, it was a little. 2005 rolled around. It was pretty much a shithole. Yeah, yeah, top to bottom. So, you know, there wasn't much left that was in good condition at that point in time. Not only had we been there for two years to, uh, you know, bomb the hell out of it, but the insurgency started fighting back and destroying things on their own. So, uh, you got a much different cut. Like I would imagine, Fallujah in the early part of 2004 wasn't what Fallujah was when I was there in 05 because. It was the scariest place on earth. Well, at least to me, it was uh, one of them. But yeah, no, and, and I get that. I, what's that? It, it, Fallujah was up there on scariest places. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I, that that's, that had the pucker factor that you were looking for uh, yeah. when they told you you were heading there. I was like, okay, we might not come back from this one. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because I, I think that there is a certain amount of, um, you know, we tend to romanticize war in general, right? Like that's just the way we speak about it in these romantic terms. And it's nothing like it when you're actually going through it. However, there are always these moments. Like I can remember um, going to the top of my building where I slept just because you had access to the roof. You're like, well, let's go up there. Uh, and you look out across the skyline, you see all these, these palm trees silhouetted in the sunset, you know, and it looks like something out of a painting or out of a movie. And you're like, wow, this, this place actually looks pretty nice. Like if you put it in the right prism and in the right light, you know, all of a sudden you're able to, to envision a place that feels like the worst place on earth as into something nice. And I think it's kind of those moments that give you that full scale spectrum of everything you can experience in war. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. It was, uh, there were some beautiful aspects that I just, I, I missed then that I think about now. All right. So, uh, you get them beginning of 2004, you're driving up there. Are you, are you like, once you cross the border from Kuwait to Iraq, are you, are you getting nervous or do you feel like, okay, now it's all game on or are you just kind of going for the ride? It didn't hit me until about, it was a three day road march up through and it didn't hit me until about day one, the night, the, the morning of day, day two, I should say, when I woke up the morning prayer, that's when it hit me. I was like, okay, here's the Middle East. Here's where I need to watch out what they're where they're calling over on the on the mosque. I gotta pay attention to my six. This is I'm in I'm at war. We're not in Kansas anymore. Literally. Yeah. Yeah, it hit me. Yeah, the uh the prayer time is always fun. Uh it's a, it's an automatic wake up alarm if you're uh if you didn't set one. Um they're mm-hmm. gonna do it regardless. So but yeah, uh, all right. So now once when that switch gets flipped, do you start to realize any sort of level of or do you, can you feel any level of anxiety or any sort of level of trepidation? Do you feel like overwhelmed with a sense of, you know, impending doom, so to speak? No. Um, up until, you know, first combat, I was excited. I was excited to to do my job, to, to do what I trained for, to get into combat, to fix vehicles, to... Um, get people back on the road as fast as I could if a vehicle got damaged. I was ready to do my job. So um, how long are you there before you get this first taste of combat? Like when is, what, what, I should just say, like, at least when do you first hear, when when do you, when does your unit get in contact with somebody or anything like that? Um, Just before Fallujah, Phantom Fury, in November of 04, uh, we okay. were set up in a, in a city called Al-Hit, a little bit, uh, I think west of, of uh, Fallujah. And that's where we, uh, there was a unit that had a fire team pinned down by insurgent uh, snipers. And they deployed us along with force recon snipers to um, blockade the city for a week and then go in and clear out any remaining forces and then to get those troops liberated. And that, that's when it hit. That's when uh, we got peppered with, with uh, machine gun fire that they stole machine guns from the uh, an army outpost. Um, they had some Humvees that they took and some, some crypto gear they took from the outpost. Um, I was sleeping in a medical waste dump. I woke up in the morning and there was syringes and body parts and goats and stuff next to me. It just, uh, that's, that's when I realized it was time to reconsider where I was. Um, when you had that revelation, you know, uh, what, what's the mental exercise you go through as you do this reconsidering and understanding? Can you recall? Um, I just went back into robot mode. I just, okay, I'm here to do a mission. That's part of this this area. I can't take take the, any that with the. I just got to take it with a grain of salt. I, I couldn't really think about it too much. I didn't think about it too much. Okay. Um, what is that experience you just talk about? Your first actual engagement in combat as well? Yes. Um, when it's over, one, I mean, are there any casualties that you guys sustained? Um, yes, we, uh, we had a vehicle hit an IED, um, uh, two one five five shells. And we had, um, one KA in my company and a, um, another vehicle in a unit in a, a company more, more north than us got hit and lost all seven. 
and uh, they were friends. Um, that hit pretty hard. And then in January of '05, I was we were still there, and uh, a helicopter. We got a call over the radio one night. We were on we were on Overwatch on MSR Mobile, and we got a call that uh, Wingman had lost his his wingman, the helicopter had lost his wingman. And we, they asked us to go to the last known position to check it out. And, um, yeah, my vehicle got there and it was a, it was a mess. The, the helicopter hit the ground. And, um, I, I forget how fast, but the CH-53 hit the ground at full speed. Um, well, let's back up for a minute here. You know, after you have this first combat engagement, uh, and you know, you, uh, not only being shot at, but you're firing back and you're in this whole thing. Do you ever take a moment when it's all said and done to do any sort of mental calculating or are you just still locked in robot mode? Hey, that was just the job and I'll, I'll be fine and I'll get at it tomorrow kind of deal. I was in robot mode. I was ready for the next gunfight. <laughs> when you look back on it, do you wish that you had not been in robot mode in some of those moments? A hundred percent. I think that would have helped me in the long run and appreciating life and, and uh, I, I still now, now I will think, what am I grateful for? Something like that. I was grateful to live through it. And my comrades were, you know, I'm grateful that they lived through it. And um, there was no real bodily harm or, or uh, yeah, I, I was in robot mode back then. And I wish I wasn't. Did anybody try to talk to you? Did you try to talk? Did any of your platoon mates turn around and say, "Hey, Mike, you know, man, that was that was some shit right there." No, we just went back to the the joking, smoking, and joking. Yeah, uh, turn page, right? Execute next mission. And the reason before I asked about casualties because that's always a game changer, right? Like it's always just it, you know. Um, sometimes that has the ability to knock you out of robot mode. It gets real. You mentioned that they were friends, um, that they were people that you knew. Uh, None of that seemed to rattle you, at least in those moments while you were downrange? No. Wow. Now, do you look back on it and wonder why it didn't get to you? I used to. Um, I used to have really bad survivor's guilt. Um, when, when I, you know, a couple of months after I, I took the uniform off, things really hit hard about about things like that. But retrospectively, I think, you know, it was... It was the mission. It the casualties of war. They wouldn't want me living in the past. Um, I, I don't. I don't. Re, I don't get stuck in that ruminating thought process anymore. How much of the helicopter crash stayed with you? Because I'm sure those sites were fairly unforgettable. That I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was. It was very imprinting. What what stands out? Um, the the whole night, um, the smells. I mean, when we rolled up on uh, we were the first vehicle there, and we had to do a body count. We were looking for survivors, and we ended up doing a body count. There were arms, legs, torsos, heads sprung all over the desert. Um, rifles broken and bent in half. Uh, rocket, you know, AT fours bent in half next to burning uh, fuselage, and. Grenades flipped over with the pins out, laying on the spoon. Um, rounds were cooking off in the fire. There was a, um, you know, I saw there's, there was one Marine Corps sergeant that had top of his head missing, and his helmet was next to him with his a picture of his family in it, and that 
that stuck with me. I, I see that not so infrequently, but frequently enough to recall it. Um, the, the smells that got all over our gear. I mean, we had to use their their own the um, people that that uh, were in the helicopter. They had their their gear all over. We used their shovels to put out the fire, and the the smells stayed on all our equipment and. and yeah, I mean, you know, listen, um, credit to you for being able to handle that. Um, you know, it's that those are the kind of things and it, it inevitably never fails. You know, I just uh, recorded an episode last week um, with uh, I, I want to just kind of remember the details of it. But it was one of those things where they tried to save a kid uh, when they got there and they couldn't save the kid. It's always like the family. It's always the kids because those people are not supposed to be involved in combat and when you see the pictures or when they're brought into it now you start to realize the completely unfair nature of all this because they're now affected and they shouldn't have been they're not supposed to be part of this this is where the warriors go to play not everybody else kids and family members aren't involved in this um but somehow they get sucked in and that is something that stays with us more than anything right they they, we we can visualize now the collateral damage yes i just saw some of that where we were at too. There was a, a family that was helping the uh, coalition forces that the insurgents brutally murdered and, and left to rot in the desert. We had to do the, the body pickup for that as well. I mean, how much of you going through all this, I, I guess I have to ask in retrospect, cause I kind of know the answer about being in robot mode, but how surprised are you that you never got snapped out of that? Given the events that you had just described, not only your friends being killed, but then the helicopter crash and another family being killed, like, are you ever, do you, are you ever sort of in awe of the fact that nothing snapped you out of that? Um, no, no, I, I did, I did seek help almost immediately, um, because it wasn't bothering me. How did you know how to do that? That's a key thing right there. Like most of us, when it's not bothering us, we don't, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If it's not affecting my ability to do my job, I don't need to address it. So how did you get to the point where it's like, hey, I saw this shit. I'm cool with it. There was a and point. <laughs> there was a point right after, uh, about a week after the, the helicopter incident where I, I wasn't sleeping for days on end. Um, just the the slightest smell would trigger flashbacks um i was getting very irritable at the littlest things and then i sought out help almost immediately yeah again um any of your other teammates platoon members notice anything different about you um i was told that that around that time my performance started to decline my ability to troubleshoot a broken vehicle went down my um, my interpersonal relationship skills diminished. I, I started looking like a ghost. Do you do you think that um, getting help in that moment um, made things better or worse? And and I'll tell you where I'm going with this in a minute. And and because there's a danger to getting help while you're downrange. There's an upside, there's plenty of upside to it, but there's a danger to it too. So in retrospect, do you think it was the right thing to do in those moments? I know it was the right thing to do. I definitely regret it. 
100% regret. So you, you vibe with me here. Uh, explain. I was ostracized from the moment I sought help. I was shunned as the, the Marine who got help, uh, taking medications. I was weak. Um, I was just looking for an out. I wasn't uh, able to keep up mission ready. And that was not that was not far farther from the truth. I was still wanting to get into the fight. I just needed some some tools. That deployment ends, right? And you get back. Um, what is it like for you? Are you still loving everything about the Marine Corps at that point in time? Do you realize that you're not the same guy? Like, where is your mental state? I was very well. Almost immediately after I got back, they, I was prescribed medications, and uh, that numbed me out pretty quickly i was mixing the the narco the uh psychotropics with alcohol heavy bouts of alcohol and um, i don't remember a good portion of that in between deployment time because i was so drugged wow did anybody recognize that you were sort of falling um i, I my command did i i was um i had made some errors in judgment uh i i had told somebody higher than me inappropriate remarks and, and was brought in front of um, my platoon sergeant was reprimanded. I uh, was late to, to a, um, to a class that I was supposed to be at and I was NJP'd. Um, it, it was brought to my attention. My command thought I was trying to avoid going back for another deployment. What did you say when they brought that to when they said that to you? I wasn't given a chance to respond. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it does seem sort of, I don't know, it just seem, seems sort of contrary to say, you know, hey, you don't want to do this while you're acting this way. No, actually, I do want to go. Like, I'm excited to go. I, I don't know if they would have heard that when you said it regardless, but um, as it turns out, you end up getting sent on this, this second deployment. Yes, actually, before we even went on the second deployment, um, in January of 06, we were on a uh, heading down to Miramar from 29 Palms on a road march. And one of our vehicles hit the Jersey barrier on the side of the highway and launched a Navy corpsman and a Marine 80 feet down off of a bridge and killed them instantly. Um, and this is just training. And that hit the unit and, and me very hard. Wow. Um was was there any sense of when you say hit you hard? I mean, not only emotionally because of the training accident, but did anything ramp up in your head again? Flashbacks, triggers, kind of deal. That never went away. No matter okay. how much medication I was on, the flashbacks, the, the irritability, the anger was still there. Did you tell them that? Did you tell the doctors that, that they're still not going away? I did. What did they say? They upped the medication. Oh, good answer. Yeah, good answer. Um, except the exact opposite of a good answer. Yeah, yeah. that usually. Let's just t let's just turn the turn the wattage up a bit. That'll fix it. Um, okay. So you know you're having these issues, and right now you've been sort of ostracized and shunned by your unit, but yet you got to go back down range. Um, concerns, fears, trepidation heading into this second deployment. I didn't think I was coming home. I was. I often had hoped I wasn't coming home. Um, I had just gotten married. Me and my uh, wife weren't doing good at the time because I was so medicated and, and drunk all the time. Um, yeah, I, I didn't think I was coming home. I didn't want to come home. I was, I, I was 
anxious to go over. I knew it was getting worse over there. And I didn't, I knew I didn't have the support in the unit that I would have liked. Did you ever voice that to anybody that you'd hoped that you wouldn't come home? Yes. I told my, my uh, ex-wife that all the time. What did she say? Yeah. Wasn't very support. It wasn't a very supportive relationship. Sure. No, I, I can understand that. Um, trust me. She, I didn't, really she didn't say anything. <laughs> you know, um, maybe sometimes that's better than what you would hear, but that's different conversation for a different day. Um, all right. So when do you arrive on the second deployment downrange? Uh, March of 06. March of 06. I was still there. Wow. Look at that. Um, I was leaving a month later, but I was, I was still there. Um, you're back in Iraq again. Where in Iraq? Uh, same exact place at Lambo. Oh, really? Okay. You're back out there again. Oh, the old stopping grounds. Same mm-hmm. mission, I assume. You're doing the same thing, turning wrenches, dismounted infantry? Yes. Level of um, kinetic operations, so to speak, obviously a lot higher then. It was way higher than what you experienced the first time. Yes. Um, it was, it was, I was put in a different role, though. I was moved from a line platoon to a headquarters platoon. And I was more on a fob. Um, I don't know if that was for my because I was on the medications. But uh, they all also only sent me with three months worth of medications, and that didn't go so good when I ran out. Um, in retrospect, do you think they did that more out of "Hey, I'm worried about Michael," or more of "He's going to be a problem. We can't let him screw things up," kind of deal? Or the both? problem issue. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Might have been a little bit of both if somebody had the wherewithal to to recognize it. Um, how quick did you run out of the medication? 90 days after I deployed. Okay, so you, you you used, I'm saying, like you didn't do it like a month and a half, went through all 90, 90 days of it. Okay. Nope, it was, it was three months. What happened when you ran out of it? <laughs> um, I don't remember a lot. I ended up almost losing my mind. I was having like, uh, really bad flashbacks, almost seizure-like instances randomly. Um, I was uh, I was just withdrawn, massive migraines. Um, I, I was paranoid. It was it was scary. I don't I don't remember a, a good chunk of that time either. Uh, as well. Um... I know that you had a TBI on this, this second deployment to make bad matters worse. What happened there? Yeah. So uh, while I was waiting on hearing what they were going to do about the medications, because I was told those medications were not in country at all, um, they sent me on a resupply route to each uh, checkpoint around the city with a vehicle. And uh, they made me vehicle commander, one of my other mechanics, the driver. And we went over this big berm and I lost my footing and hit my head off the uh, 240 swivel mount and it uh, knocked me unconscious. And uh, when we returned back to the fob, um, they took my weapon from me and, and told me to go wait in the command center while they figured out what to do with me. And I had, I had no idea what was going on. I was in a big fog. I I couldn't really, I I really didn't know what was going on. And um, yeah. and, And they, end up medevacking me after I defecated all over myself. Um, I just, I lost the ability to hold, hold uh, my bowels. It was, it wasn't fun. Um, did they not um, 
were, were they assuming that was just from the TBI or were they not able to put together everything together was, was sort of coming down here at one time? I'm not sure. Honestly, I really don't know. I was, I was in limbo. I don't know why they had to figure out what to do with me. I didn't know why I didn't see medical uh, staff. I didn't know why I was being addressed for getting knocked unconscious. And uh, I made an offhand comment to to a a friend. I was like, you know, sometimes these these effers. And then I was told I was going to be court-martialed. Oh. And they took my weapon from me and sent me back to the rear and put me on a medevac bird and uh, to a combat stress center. In retrospect, the right thing? Did they do the right thing in that moment? Yes, by getting me back on the medications at that moment, yes. I think that was the right thing to do. Okay. In retrospect, did you feel like they didn't attend to you the right way? Like, in reality, we know a lot more now than we did in 2006, right? And generally, we just we treat the whole thing different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, in fairness to them to a certain extent, when I say them, I mean the Marine Corps and, and your leadership. We didn't know. We didn't know. Right. right? We, you know, I didn't know what a TBI was. I had a headache. I banged my head. I might have got a concussion. Okay, tape it up, get back in there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it, it just a lot, a lot of things that I saw I never said to anybody anything about because we just didn't know. Um, now, do you feel more confident that a situation like yours would be handled differently? Absolutely. I think I, I learned in, in 2007 the Wounded Warrior Regiment was stood up um, it, to help instances like this uh troops to um stay in and, and get the help or or transition getting out with with uh assistance i think there are things in place because of people like me uh had to go through and i'm glad that, that those things are there so you get back on the medic backbird um when you land back in the states are you relieved at all uh are you mad what's your kind of emotional state outside of everything else you're dealing with i was really angry i was really angry i i wanted to um at the marine corps at myself i i wanted to uh you know i wanted to make it a career i wanted to stay for 20 years and uh all those hopes and dreams went away quickly what's the first thing they do with you when they get back to the treatment center uh the the combat stress center sorry combat stress center thank you oh no um they Re put me on. They put me on the medications again. They they found the medications. I think in Germany and sent them over. And um, I was given the recommendation to switch positions in my unit to a more uh, rear position. And uh, I think I think I don't remember the exact wording, but something less stressful, more or less, which is kind of hard in a combat zone. And um, but they were trying yeah, to get the, you down range then. That was the recommendations. And your thoughts on that were? I didn't want that. I wanted to go right back to the fight. Okay, and, so you, they, wanted, you did want to go back down range, is what I'm saying. Yes, and, and they sent me back, too. They sent me right back to the same spot. Oh, really? So so that wasn't the end? Like, they medevaced you out and then brought you back in? Yes, and right back to the same unit, same platoon, everything. Were you welcomed back by your fellow Marines? No, I was not. I was even more ostracized. 
Ever think about going to your command and talking to them and saying, hey, sir, look, this is really what's going on here. And I, I, I'm not well and I need help. I thought I had um, through the chain of command. I talked to my platoon sergeant, um, my executive officer, um, CEO a little bit. I, I thought I had advocated for myself, but apparently not enough. Ever think back that maybe they didn't listen? Yes. I mean, I, I, and I, you know, I'm playing amateur psychologist here uh, for a reason. Trust me, there's a, there's always a method to my madness. Um, some of that anger um, and some of that ostracized, you know, nature can be directed at them because of one, a climate that they have set and two, their inability to uh, recognize that one of their soldiers needs a little bit of extra attention in a different way. No, sorry, the Marines needs different extra attention than than what uh, what somebody else does and provide it to them. I mean, you know, look, I'm I'm a fairly uh, when it comes to leadership, you know, it's 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 something that is not uh, ever one way that you have to lead different people different ways. It doesn't matter whether you're a Marine or you're a soldier or an airman or a sailor. Um, you're still a person, and you're going to react differently to different stimulus, as we talked about at the top. So, I'm always a fan of what works. The way I lead one individual doesn't necessarily mean the other individual is going to respond the same way. And it's incumbent on leadership, I think, to be able to recognize those that don't necessarily all fall in line the same way and connect with them on a level they understand. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I I think at that point, they had no idea what to do with me. And they just kind of threw their hands up. Um, Let me ask you, <laughs> since we're talking about it, ever – after all this is done, reach back out to them and let them know what had happened and what you had gone through and what you were diagnosed with. Did they ever find out? Yes, I reached out to my CEO, actually, and uh, of all things, Facebook Messenger and and, email, and wrote a, a nice message um, owning my in- inability to advocate for myself entirely back then, let him know what was going on, um, and just to clarify things, to clear the air. And... Uh, it was, it was a welcome message. He, he responded in, in like manner, you know, apologized and, and uh, you know, explained it was you know, a different time. Didn't know, really didn't know what was going on. And uh, it, it was a tough situation. I, I wouldn't want to be in his spot back then at all. You believe his answer? I do. I do. I, I would have accepted whatever answer you gave. I wasn't probing in a in a nefarious way. I was just curious whether you were satisfied with it. I mean, there has to be some level of validation, at least, in knowing that, you know, your old CEO now understands, even if they didn't back then, that now they can understand that, you know, uh, you know, this is why things were going down the way they were, and that maybe you weren't a bad Marine. Maybe you weren't, you know, a guy who wanted to cause trouble. Maybe you weren't that guy. You just got in a tough spot and, and things unfolded the way they did. And that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I do feel validated. Some of the uh, command I've been in touch with uh, uh, my maintenance chief, I've been in touch with throughout the years and, and they've definitely validated my experience. Okay. So you go back down range, any other ticks that you deal with any other, you know, pieces of combat or are you so far with the headquarters, you know, unit that you're not getting anywhere close. Um, we had another, um, vehicle 
hit an IED, lost another Marine. And um, I wasn't in, in the forward. I wasn't in a line platoon at that point. I was still at that in the fall. But I did deal with um, you know, people, uh, Army unit rolling through with a casualty. We had to medevac. Um, I did deal with some stuff still, but uh, not not out on the, on the line platoon side. All right. When you get back home for the second time, now what are you thinking? Um, I'm thinking I got to keep my head low. I got to keep quiet. I, I was, let's see, I got back August of 06 and I EAS. I got out January of 07. So I was just, you know, staying quiet, doing as I was told and just try, trying to. Oh, you wanted, you wanted to reenlist though, didn't you? Yes, and they they told me that was just not an option. Who's the they in that sentence? My command. Okay. Did you ask and, why? Um, all the disciplinary actions they had to take upon me. Um, the uh, the fact that they had to um, they they tried to court martial me while I was in country for my behavior, um, which was appealed and, and was turned into an NJP. Um, just I was told that. Uh, it wasn't an option. I did. I did submit a package though, and uh, it was denied. Quickly. Um. Any asking? Hey, send me to a different unit. Send me to a different place, and and let me try to continue my career there. Um. In, in my realistic package, I put in for a, a schoolhouse, a non-deployable unit, and uh, yeah, it was it was just denied. How much of that is? part of the mental anguish you're dealing with in this process. This just feels like one more thing. Now this dream of being a Marine for 20 years is crushed. That added to it for sure. It was, yeah, it, it continued. I like how you said the anguish. Yes. Okay. Um, when you get out, do you know what you want to do next? Because it's not like at this point in time, you were medically discharged, right? You weren't diagnosed with anything. You had just, Hey, the Marines isn't for you. You go, you go your path and we'll go ours and we'll all call it a day kind of deal. So there's nothing. Um, and I don't, I don't like to phrase it, you know, no benefits coming your way. There's nothing beneficial coming your way, but you know, now we know if somebody from 2018 to 2022 had went through their four years, they'd be much differently taken care of. So you have no plans for after you get out of the Marine Corps, I assume. I didn't have any big grand plan. Um, I still wanted to continue as a mechanic, which I was fortunate to get out with that trade. Where did you go to do that? Um, right there in Southern California. I worked for a Peterbilt dealership. So you stayed down there. Okay. Yes. For, uh, for about eight years. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, it's not a bad place to live. Expensive, but not a bad place to live. It ended up being a very bad place to live in 08 oh. when the economy tanked. That's a good point. Uh, you win. Uh, point, point, point. <laughs> Uh, the, um, the, the adding to your anguish, uh, the economy is in the crapper as well. Uh, but you had mentioned too, as well, that you had gotten a rash of survivors guilt when you got out. How quick? What was the time frame from that happening from the day you walked out of the Marine Corps to when? I mean, there was some while well, I was still in, for sure. But uh, Probably the day I went to the VA and, and applied for benefits. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I'm still here. I got all my fingers, all my toes, and I got friends that aren't here. Why am I doing this? 
do I, do I, I don't, I don't deserve this. Were you ever able to come up with an answer to that question? Yes. Recently, actually. Okay. What is it? They're not here for me to deserve this. I most certainly deserve the, the help that I get because of what they've done. Because of their sacrifice. Yeah. They no, did it for us. Well said. Well said. Uh, as you enter the VA in this system here, do you know exactly what you're trying to get done? I mean, are you still on the medication? Yes. It's, that was what I was trying to get done. I was trying to get the next bill, bottle filled. You're, so you're on this medication now for what? Three, four yeah. years? At that point, when I got out, two years. Two years? And nothing is getting better. At no point in time did you be like, hey, these pills don't work. No, they, they, they never work. So I just, I'm just, like, I'm genuinely asking, why did, did, did you never, ever try to go a different route? At that point, no. They just told me that, uh, oh, you're having this symptom? Try this medication instead. And then I tried that for six months, and they tried to increase the dosage, and it just nothing stuck. I, so I, the- I was numb. They got me numb. Yeah, well, I, I can imagine. I mean, you're drugged up 24-7. Um, good, bad, or indifferent. It's no way to live. Uh, so you go there for more medication. What actually happens? Well, I, I filed for my uh, VA disability with um, a service organization while I was out there in California. And almost within three months, I was uh, given 50% uh, service kind of disability. So... They, I was going to the therapies and the uh, classes just to get the pills filled. I just wanted, the, I just wanted my next thing of clonopin. I, I, I'm floored um, at how addicted you were to this medication. I mean, do you realize that you're addicted to it? Yes, I was. I was chewing them at one point. I was going through a 30 day supply within a week. Oh my god. And they, I was getting, they'd reissue me more medication. Yeah, well, they're good at that. The VA is great at that. It's just one little button push in the computer, and they don't have to do anything else from there because the pharmacy takes care of the rest. Um, were you talking to anybody outside of the VA? No. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a support system in California. You didn't pick up the phone, call your parents? Um, I did, but I just, I hit it for them. In retrospect, do you think you should have told him? Maybe. Why did you pause so long? I don't know if telling my mother 3,000 miles away would have helped anything. <laughs> She's getting a car driving three days to the trek to Southern California from Maine to come and see you? That's, that's actually kind of not far from how I got back home here oh. to Maine. Okay. I, uh, so I I hit the bottle pretty hard as well with the medications, and when trucks weren't moving, I wasn't getting paid, and uh, when gas was like five bucks a gallon out there back then. So I ended up homeless in Southern California in 2010 or 2011, and my uh, dad called one night. My stepdad, I called my dad, said, "Hey, how you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm, I'm good." He's like, "Bullshit, what's going on?" I'm like, oh, I'm living in my car at the truck stop. He's like, all right, write this number down. I'm like, what is it? He's like, it's a money order. Go get yourself some food and a shower, stay at a hotel. Like, all right. He calls me back like 
Two hours later, he's like, write this number down. I'm like, Dad, don't send me any more money. He's like, it's no money. Pick me up at the airport tomorrow morning. I'll see you. He flew out there, and we drove back home. That saved your life? 100%. Pat, did you ever ask him how he knew? No. No, I just... He knows. <laughs> yeah. Man. Angels on our shoulders, right? Um that's incredible. Uh, and, and hats off to your, to your father slash stepdad and, and um, his work and being there and, and being so critical. And it just, you know, it, 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 look for everybody out there listening and watching, you know, it's that simple. Just check in, check in. And then when they say, no, everything's fine. Double check again, double and triple check. And then start to ask a little bit more questions because that's the difference between life and death for some people. It ultimately is. You know, um, and you know your friends and your loved ones better than it, Michael or I do in this case, you know, but um, it was as easy as a stepdad saying bullshit. And for somebody else, it might be, you know, you have to pry a little bit harder kind of deal. So uh, take away from this week's episode, just do that. I and mean, that's it. That's incredible. Um, what did you guys talk about on the ride back? Uh, that's a lot of driving. It is. It, we, we got back so, in like three days pretty quickly. Um, he had to work. Uh, we just talked about what my next steps were and he was, um, he kind of directed me in, in my actions. He said, you know, start getting, go, go to your therapist, make sure you stay on the medications they want you on. Um, you know, just do what you're told type deal. My, my father's been in law enforcement for 40 years. So kind of a, a paramilitary attitude. So it wasn't right. far from the military. Did he know to the extent of the addiction and the drugs that you had? No, he did not. When does that all come to unfold? Uh, when I realized when I realized I was heavily medicated and drugged. Yeah. So after a few years back here in Maine, um, I ended up homeless again after another failed relationship. I uh, met my current wife, who was. Uh, her father's a veterinarian in holistic medicine and she's always like all right it doesn't always have to be a medication it's not all about drugs it's there's other alternatives try acupuncture i'm like oh god not this stuff and then i started helping with the horses and and the dogs and cats and i started seeing horses go off uh, you know being on um valium or uh i think i think dogs are on valium too and um they can do organic Chinese herbals and they'll be okay. I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. So I started getting acupuncture. I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And then I was like, holy crap, I'm heavily on the drugs. Like I was shaking when I wasn't drinking. Um, and just switching my mindset from what my wife had suggested and, and going to more holistic. I didn't need the medications as much. I, I realized I didn't need them the whole time to begin with. I was just masking symptoms. I wasn't fixing anything. And the the stuff I do now gets to the issue. It doesn't cover it up like medication does. It's not a band-aid. It, it gets to the root. And yeah, so 2015, um, actually, let me backtrack. Sorry about that. TBI uh, problems. Uh, um, so, so I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. So in 2015, 
I was in a moped accident of all things. I didn't think you needed a helmet on a moped. You're only doing 25. Um, I was with my, my wife at the time, my now wife, and, uh, we were moving houses and I was going to storage and I hit the soft shoulder. I ended up face down in ditch of water unconscious. Somebody passing by flipped me over. Luckily, cause I had, I inhaled the water. I almost drowned in four inches of water, like Ira Hayes. Um, it was, uh, and I was in a medically induced coma for about three weeks after that accident. And, uh, when I came to, that's when everything hit me at once because they didn't have me on the psychotropics while I was in the coma. Um, so I was very, it, things were raw when I came out of the, out of the coma. Things were very raw. And, um, say raw, do you mean because your body was physically reacting to the withdrawal of not being on the medication or you just had gotten to a breaking point, so to speak, raw? Um, all the above. It was definitely my physical symptoms were surprising me. Um, the, all the memories started coming back that had been numbed for so many years. Um, all the, the flashbacks were, were memories that I was having and I didn't realize that. I thought they were just fragments of, of pieces of something that I had no idea. Um, it was, it was intense. And, uh, are uh, you scared at this point? I wasn't scared. I was done. Life was over for me. I was, I had to make the decision that I was done with life. And I even, I had put a pistol in my mouth and my wife pulled it out and said, we got to get help. Okay. Um, so now you are, uh, at this point here and you want to go get help. Where do you go for help when you're at this low of a low? Well, um, I walked into the house from pulling the pistol out of my mouth and, uh, I wrote a couple veteran organizations and said, Hey, this is my last effort. I need help. Um, one nationally known organization didn't respond back. Another one, the Semper Fi fund wrote back that day. And the following day, a retired Marine Corps, lieutenant, uh, retired Marine Corps Colonel and major came to my house, took me out to lunch and offered to me the shepherd center. That's amazing. That is so awesome. What was your feeling when, when the knocks on the door and you're like, who the hell is this? And you open the door. What are you thinking? Um, I thought it might've been the police. Um, because of my attempted suicide, I thought it might be my parents because my wife called them. I was very surprised when it was a major and a colonel. And they said what? Oh, I don't really remember what they said. Um, they offered me an out. They said that there's this program they heard of um, that they hadn't had anybody go to yet. That they've heard has amazing results and um, it's down in Georgia. So it'd be a chance to get out of Maine in the middle of winter and um, get some, some help. And I said, you know, I got nothing else going. Why not? Um, so you decided to get on a plane. And, oh, by the way, just for everybody know, Shepard's tend to pay us for all this. Mike didn't have to play for a paying ticket. Didn't have to play, pay for anything. Um, they housed you there for your entire stay right on their campus, free of charge, uh, while they run you through – 
what feels like a battery of tests, um, but it's all for, it's all for your for your own good. Um, they're pretty thorough with making sure, and they don't overwhelm me in any one given day. You know, they kind of know when enough is enough. Uh, and you certainly could say, hey, I've had enough today. I need to go lay down, and they're totally okay with it. There's not like a hard, fast timeline where you have to be out of the program in three weeks, and that's it. Uh, and on to the next one, it's, it's you know, individualized for you. Uh, when you get to the Shepherd Center, do you even know what you're walking into? No. No, I thought I was like, all right, free lunch, free free meal, um, trip to Georgia, why not? And, oh boy, was I mistaken. It was, I, I was I was in the wrong in my thought process, and I'm so grateful, and, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't go down. Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting, too. Um, and again, for the audience, I, I went through the Shepherd Center uh, on a different, you know, they have, they, they have a lot of different programs for different people. Some people stay on campus the whole time. I live in Atlanta. I was able to drive back home and go back and forth, and it wasn't an issue. Um, they're very good about sort of fitting to your needs uh, as I continue to, to promote them here. Uh, but it's worthwhile because they, they're a great organization. Um, but what I found was so interesting sometimes is just sitting down next to somebody who's in the program too and figuring out their story, right? And, and they're listening to yours and you're listening to theirs and you're sort of strangely forming this bond over this trauma that you're all dealing with in some size, way, shape, or form. Uh, and in return, you have one more person who's willing to save your life to make sure that you're going to get up the next day and go back to the program and finish the whole thing for your own good. And I think, I always think that that's pretty amazing. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the genuine care and concern the clinicians have for each person that goes to this program is over it's, it's amazing i mean they, they care what was there a seminal moment in the program where you kind of realized one uh how low you really were or how much you messed up or you know you sort of get to these revelations where you, you look back and you get that light bulb goes on you go like oh god like it was worse than i thought kind of deal there was a lot of those moments um not unsurprisingly because of the medications and things uh i was meeting with the um the doctor in charge of the program dr uh, gore and he looked at my medication list he goes holy geez you're on a deployment dosage here he's like this is this is unsustainable we need to help with this and shepherd helped me tailor back on medications and go on to a reasonable medication list um and then uh the shepherd's men came into town um and they ran the last three miles from boston to atlanta they offered for the uh clients to run the last three miles with them like i was in the marine corps i can run three miles hoorah i was hurting bad i was uh bent over at the finish line with my uh bad knees my bad back my plantar fasciitis i'm like oh my god what am i doing to myself and the uh, at, at Shepherd with the uh, welcoming the Shepherd's men back in to from the run, there was a big um, celebration, and that's when I first accepted a thank you for your service from Travis Mills, the uh, or Travis um, Ellis, Travis Ellis from the uh, the Shepherd's men founder, and uh, that's what flipped everything over. That's what started this journey. To, to health and wellness 
why was that such a big moment for you? Um, I learned that Travis was not military. And he does it simply because he wants to help us. I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all the stuff that Travis and his men do for the Shepherd Center. And um, it's just, uh, it warms my heart even thinking about it. It's such an amazing organization that, that was the springboard for who I am today. As you're going through the program, um, you know, and I'll say this much too, another sort of plug, you know, the, the TBI stuff they do is, in my opinion, off the charts good. Uh, I didn't even realize, I mean, I, I guess in retrospect, I assumed I had when I just ignored it. I just didn't realize how many other symptoms were related to it. How many other things that I was experiencing, you know, headaches and, and dizziness and, and feeling faint and everything else that were all related to multiple TBIs that I sustained over the course of two deployments. Um, I'll never forget. They, <laughs> this was the eye-opening test. I don't know if they did this with you, but they have you uh, do that regular eye chart. And then the the therapist, what's the right word, doctor, therapist, whatever it is, they take your head and grab you by the ears and they shake your head back and forth as fast as possible. And they go, tell me what line you can read. And I'm sitting there going like, I'm going to throw up. I can't see anything. You know, she's like, you can't even see the first line. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm looking at right now. You know, I was able to get to like, I got the big E. I was like, yeah, there's an E there. That's it. <laughs> what about line two? I have no idea. I, it's, everything is blurry. And she's like, okay, thank you. That's all we needed to know. We're done. We're done with that test for the day. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you just don't realize how much, you know, uh, and it wasn't like violent. It wasn't like shake a, shake a baby to kill it kind of shake. They just turn your head back and forth for you. Um, and, and then when they ask, when they finally stop and you try to reorient yourself. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, don't try that at home folks, make sure a, a you know, clinician is doing it for you, but you know, their TBI stuff I think is great. Um, and, and it begins to help you realize the scope of how your body is all connected to everything with your brain and your nervous system and, and, um, the level of effects it could have on you. Um, were you, did you have any moments like that where you realized, Oh my God, like, you know, my, my body is not responding the way normal people do. Yes. The, the vestibular tests, like you talked about, um, I, I, you know, looking at my finger and, and going back and forth, keeping my eyes on my finger. I couldn't walk after doing that for a minute. I was, the world was spinning. I was nauseous. I'm like, I can't even look at my finger for a minute. And uh, just little things like that were symptoms of TBIs that I had no idea were, were contributing. Even the, the PTSD symptoms mirror TBI uh, issues. So there was a lot of things that I thought was PTSD that I was being medicated for were TBI related. It's a, it, it's a, it's an incredible journey. Um, when you are done with the Shepherd Center, uh, as far as your stay there, and I'm not sure how long you stayed, but um, when you're done, how noticeable of a difference is it from the Michael that's at the end of this thing to the Michael that walked in this thing? My mother told me that uh, for years now, she said that the Marine Corps and, and Operation Iraq and Freedom took her boy away. Shepherd Center gave her her boy back. And um, I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, you know, I was told that, I once heard that um, when you go into combat, you commit moral suicide and uh, you just get rid of your morals. And that's true. 
Shepard helped me reestablish those morals and, and find out who I was and what tools I can use to go forward and not live in the past. I, I, I would, I don't like that phrase, commit moral suicide. It, it bothers me. I, but I have said it forever. That doesn't matter what your job is overseas. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, the person you were before you deploy dies the minute you deploy. And mm-hmm. that person's never coming back. You're just different. It was an experience that, well, as it should change you. Now, hopefully it doesn't change you all for the, for the worse. Hopefully it doesn't lead you down the road that you had to go down. But the person that you were before is, that, that person's gone. They ain't coming back. Um, and, and the baby boy that is back for your mother is not exactly the same one, you know, that left for the Marine Corps, but it's a close version to it. Right. And that's okay. Yes. Doesn't have to be the same person, and it shouldn't be. Just like anything, even without deployment, as you grow older, you change, you grow, you you, you learn more, you mature. I mean, theoretically, none of us should be in the same position we were 10, 15 years ago. But uh, um, there's that. So, um, have you been back to the Shepherd Center since? Yes, yes. Yeah. So that first time I went was in 2016, and they uh, they gave me the tools to to want to improve myself so much that that was my my new mission. I woke up every day, go, okay, how can I improve myself today? How can I improve myself, make myself better, faster, stronger, skinnier? Um, I went from 320 pounds. I'm at 170. Oh, my uh, God. You went up to 320 pounds? Yes. I, I like to eat. Now I just eat the right things. Dude, you don't um, look like you hold 320 pounds. Yeah, I was a big boy. And, uh, wow. Yeah, and, and I kept going, 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 going. And that's what I needed help with this year. I realized... Um, around Christmas time, my father had a heart attack. Uh, my grandmother passed away. A tree hit our house. Things were just coming all at once. And I just couldn't, I thought I couldn't handle it. And I reached back out to the Shepherd Center. I said, Hey, I'm, you know, you guys gave me good tools. I'm, you know, always fo- focused on, on future and, and planning things, but I'm doing it too much. And can you help? They opened the doors wide open. They said, come on back. We'll help you. We'll, uh, we'll help reset you. And they, they did. I just got back in uh, May. Wow. It's incredible. That's a, it's amazing. Look, number one. Okay. I take it for what it's worth. I'm proud of you. It's not easy to pick yourself up, uh, from the depths of where you were, even with assistance there, you know, as any addict will tell you, sometimes you fall easily off. Yeah. I'm going to quit. Oh yeah. No, I'm back. Um, so even with somebody pulling the gun out of your mouth and walking you forward doesn't mean that you couldn't have fallen back into that. So the short answer is I'm, I'm proud of you. We all are. Um, Thank you. And we're glad you're still here because you, you, you have earned the right to be here and, and your fallen brothers and sisters have given you that right. And, and there's nothing you should be ashamed about for it. Um, you miss them. You love them. You remember them. Um, but you live for them now that they're gone because they would do the same for you. And that's kind of like the unspoken credo, right? Um, I think it's great that you have had such success with it. Uh, I'm glad to see that the people that I know and that I, you know, have met with on several occasions, the head sheds who work there, but again, I've also gone, it's strange because I, I met all the high big players who run the whole organization before I ever went through it. Cause I literally had to pick up the phone and call one of them and said, look, I'm, I'm, I need help. And they said, don't worry about it. We got you. We'll take care of you. And, and that was, it happened that quickly. So um, knowing that their job they're doing is working, but also the, you know, as, as I went through the program, I know that, uh, it very much is a, a, a place that everybody, all of us veterans can go for the help that we need. Now they've even opened it up to first responders and 
and other people as well for those out there listening and watching. So, um, but the fact that you at this point, I think are able to recognize when you're off kilter and when you need to reset. And even if that reset requires help from the shepherd center, your wife, your parents, your dog, whoever it may be, um, that recognition step is probably the best tool you have in your toolbox and understanding that I, I, I have to, change up what is going on or I'm going to lead myself down a road that I might not be able to turn back from. And, and I think that I hear that, I hear you say it. And I'm like, that feels for lack of a better term, like a cure, right? Like if, if you're going to call yourself cured, it's because of that function right there that I know when I'm getting off kilter and I know that to ask for help and go get the help that I need to get back. If that makes sense. If, if, if I may say, <laughs> Yes, thank you. That that is a success. I checked I checked that box 100%. Yeah. Um so now you are and again, uh the, the journey still continues. We, we know it's not ever 100% healed or 100% fixed or cured, but you know, um we're we're all a work in progress, but now you're doing biathlons, marathons, things of that nature, correct? Yes, I I just got back from a week in Utah mountain biking at uh, Park City and uh I just had a half marathon this past weekend. I just love to move, and you know, so you weren't hates- you weren't bent over at the end like you were three miles. Uh, <laughs> no, no, depression hates a moving target, and uh, the more I move, the less depressed I feel. And physical activity is is my my church. It's my relaxation. It's where I meditate. It's it's a big thing for me. You said you told me before we started recording. You're also assisting with uh, with a veterinarian group or or veterinarians. Yes, my, my father-in-law is a, a veterinarian, a Cornell Western trained veterinarian. And, um, he does Eastern medicine. So acupuncture, chiropractics, herbals on horses, dogs, cats, animals at the zoo. It's pretty amazing. I feel like I want to try it. <laughs> Which part? The, the acupuncture, uh, for, for the animals. I'd like to try it on me. You know, I, I, I feel like I had some horse grade, you know, acupuncture might do me some good these days loosen up some stuff that hasn't moved in a while yeah i i'm i'm acupuncture junkie i go regularly every three weeks wow well there you go so that's that's i guess that's the keys to the kingdom um anything else on the future for you because i mean you know this story has a, a a happy ending to this point but we want it to continue um just uh you know my my kids are are almost college age um helping my my daughter wants to go to mit or harvard hopefully she gets a uh, scholarship <laughs> um but uh no my my kids are driving me forward um and uh i i like life life is fun now life is exciting your kids know to the extent of the depths and how low you are my daughter does um she is tearing it up in her JROTC at her high school out there in Southern California. Um, she wants to explore space. I've kind of tried to steer her towards the Air Force or the Navy. Um, and we'll see what she does. But uh, I told her a little bit. And she is in awe of her dad. And, and it's it's That's interesting awesome. to see what she feels. It's great. Well, the daughter's aspirations are as high as the moon, for crying out loud. Good for her. It's <laughs> every single one of them. Um, that's, that's outstanding. That's, that's incredible. Well, look, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, uh, life finds you in a better place than where you were. I'm happy for all your success. Again, I'm proud of all the work and effort and energy that you've put into 
keeping yourself alive and making each day worthwhile. Um, I think that's, that's paramount. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to share your story because I know somebody out there listening and watching uh, has felt all those same feelings and hasn't been able to sleep and has had night terrors and, and, you know, all these other things. And, and there is a cure, there is a way through. And, and I think that's just a great message that you've helped send. Yes. And if I can help anybody with, with my journey, then that's a success for me. I just, there are tools and there are, are things out there for people in our situation and they're there for us. So use them. Shepherd.org is where you guys can go. S-E-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, like Shep and Herd, but one word, Shepherd.org is where you guys go for information on the Shepherd Center. And again, uh, reach out, drop my name, drop Mike's name. We, we know people. We'll, we'll give, <laughs> give you the friends and family discount, so to speak. Uh, continued success. Best of luck to you. Uh, stay in touch with us, man. Thank you so much for sharing your story and all your honesty and the depths of where you were. I know it's going to resonate with somebody and uh, much continued success, brother. Mike, it's all part of Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.